Dr. Amy Keen, otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is the most important medicine. If you're a physician or healthcare provider, this podcast is for you. This is where we learn about trauma-informed medicine and ways to build resilience in healthcare organizations. We do this through your stories and the stories of other professionals and people. We listen to transform medicine with compassion and curiosity about what it means to be a trauma-informed practice or provider. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and leave with tangible tools you can use with patients right away. Today, I'm talking with a special guest, Don Dom. Don is the co-editor and book Parenting with PTSD, The Impact of Childhood Abuse on Parenting. She is the mother of two, has an adverse childhood experience score of nine, and has spent nearly 20 years working in the trenches of our mental health system. Don is currently the program director for Milestone Manor, a recovery home in Saratoga Springs, New York. Previous to that, she provided ICM and health home care management services to adults living with mental illness in the community. She entered her career in the field as a mental health inpatient tech and a child and youth residential counselor. Dawn uses both her personal and professional experience to write, speak, and facilitate conversation about trauma-informed systemic change. Her mission is to help shift the culture's understanding of what it means to recalibrate and heal the mind and body from trauma. Wow. We are like-minded souls, Dawn. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. I really appreciate the invitation to be here. I'm happy to be here and talk about, talk on this topic. Yeah, wonderful. Well, that's kind of your, your formal introduction. Um, anything else you want to say about your introduction, who you are, or what you do? Um, well, uh, I- I'm a mom, like you said, uh, two two kids. My my son is ten now, and my daughter's thirteen. So, both very fun um, and very challenging ages. Um, I yeah, uh, life is pretty busy with with work and with kids. But um, you know, in my spare time, I try to just um, I'm soaking up the rest of the sun. The summer we have here is yeah. definitely coming to an end. Um, so just trying to get outdoors and uh, take advantage of the fresh air while we can before we're all cooped up inside. Um, yeah, that's about it. Life, work, kids. <laughs> well, I know that you recently uh, co-wrote a book um, and we're going to dive into that. But let me back up and ask you a question that I ask um, or try to ask all of my guests, which is how would you define trauma? <sighs> trauma for for me, um, I think of it much more in the context of what it does to individuals um, as they are developing now more than I ever did before. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of trauma as an as a, a, a physical, not so much the event that happened, but the physical and mental reactions we have to those experiences um, and how that uh, both affects how we develop um, initially as children, uh, particularly when the trauma occurs when we're young, but also uh, the ripple effect that that has uh, well into adulthood and particularly um, once we become parents, mm-hmm. uh, how it can take our mind and body back to a time and place um, where it kind of muddles the water for current experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Wonderful, wonderful example. On this podcast, you know, we talk about how trauma intersects in the field of medicine. Um, And I know before we we hit record today, we were kind of talking offline about um, your experience as the program director. Um, Tell us a little bit more about, you know, the, the types of patients and clients you serve at Milestone Manor and how you see the intersection of trauma uh, come up there? You know, um, 99% of the population that live in the community residence um, that I run have trauma. Actually, I say 99, but it's really 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, these individuals, uh, I work with an adult population, um, so 18 and up, all have mental health diagnoses. Um, most have substance use disorder diagnoses and uh, physical health ailments. Um, There's very rarely an occasion where someone comes in 
who cannot be taught how to acquire the skills to live independently in the community. And that is the on paper overall goal, right? We want to get these individuals to a place where they can um, function in a way that they know how to take care of themselves in independent living. Mm-hmm. It sounds simple, but it's really not because what happens is most individuals have the skills to take care of themselves. They can do dishes, they can, you know, they can cook a meal. But it's the experiences that have that have traumatized their minds and bodies to be able to prioritize self-care in addition to that that gets in the way. And they don't have sustainable ways of taking care of themselves. And so we do a lot of work at our house uh, around repair. Mm-hmm. Um we we know that you know when people experience trauma early on it affects their ability to to reason um to plan uh planning actually for me i have found is one of the key ingredients to help people rewire um because without the ability to plan ahead they a lot of individuals self sabotage they um they put themselves in risky situations. And so we spend a lot of time both helping individuals step out of the moments when they're triggered, think ahead, plan ahead, um, get to the root of what is causing the physical ailments, what's Mm -hmm. causing, what's leading them to want to use. Um, It's that urge that just so many individuals have to both stuff and to mask uh, what it is that they're living with. Um, and unfortunately it doesn't get brought up enough in other arenas of their lives to where they feel like it has anything to do with their current situation. Mm -hmm. I mean, I talk a lot about this with, with healthcare providers, Don, which is if someone's using substances, you know, we have such a, a, a huge judgment around their character and who they are as people, but really they're just trying to cope with atrocities and really painful experiences in the only way that maybe they know how, or that they have access to. Mm-hmm. We spend a significant amount of time teaching people um, and coaching people to be able to sit in discomfort mm-hmm. um, because it really is that ability to sit in discomfort that helps you unlearn Mm-hmm. Uh, things that have gotten in the way, you know, barriers in their lives in the past and, and relearn uh, how to move through them. And it doesn't, you know, shut you completely down and learning how to do that without necessarily turning to medication to do it. Not that medication does not help. I am not an opponent of medication by any means, um, but so many of these individuals a lot of them, since they were very young, have been put in these categories of diagnoses yes. and sent home with medication to fix it with no real investigation or curiosity about what's at the root of it. Oh. Um, one of my favorite populations to work with is those diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Um, and it is the hardest Uh, because of the level of dysregulation that these individuals, you know, live with. Um, But I get to work with individuals in their home setting. Mm -hmm. So it's easier to help them get a sense of safety, build relationship and get them curious about what's underneath, why their relationships are so disruptive, why they can't seem to get better, why they, Um, you know, and undo a lot of that language that is thrown at them for most of their lives, manipulative behavior, um, you know, all that sort of just language that gets stuck to them um, without any real explanation as to, you know, why they do those sort of things. What are, what need are they trying to get met, you know, and teach them how to get that need met just with a different, in a different way, something that serves them now. What served them in the past isn't working anymore. So we want to give them the skills they need to to um, get through these moments without returning to those ways that uh, are putting them at risk or causing them harm. 
Wow. I mean, there's so much that I hope listeners are are pulling from what you're saying. I hope they're just taking copious notes because so many things that you're saying in terms of being curious about what's underneath the behavior. Um, I love what you said a minute ago. When we sit with discomfort, it helps us unlearn that trauma response that we may have gone to in the past that's no longer working for us. Can you, can you tell us, do you have a story of someone you've worked with, of course, you know, protecting their information, but uh, where they really were able to learn that skill of sitting with discomfort so that they could choose or engage in a different behavior? So the first example that came to mind really was, um, we try to have purpose around any rule that we have in our house, Mm -hmm. right? So an opportunity, it's good it's my goal to have it be an opportunity to, to practice. Um, and an example of that would be, so um, dinner is served at five 30 every evening um, residents. We do a family style dinner and that's on purpose. Um, we have, uh, we have a recommendation that everybody sit at the table for at least 15 minutes, whether they eat or not. This may sound strange, but the, the purpose behind that is so many individuals have food insecurities. They have food and eating issues when they come in. They also have um, possibly negative um, memories and, and experiences sitting around a dinner table or never sitting around a dinner table. Agree. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's uncomfortable for a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. By having them sit at the table for 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And just be able to realize nothing is happening to put them in danger in that minute. And in fact, it's actually inviting the opportunity to have conversation with folks while in discomfort, right? Mm. Mm. Yeah, It really retrains the brain in that moment. They're not cognizant of it most of the time. Mm-hmm. But that's what's actually happening. And after a period of time, that becomes something that most folks look forward to is yeah. dinner. Time. And once they've had 15, 20 dinners like that, where there's not mm-hmm. disruption, where there's not abuse, where there's a positive experience sitting together in community and eating, now mm-hmm. their brain starts to rewire is what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I I think that often when we talk about what it means to be trauma informed or, you know, what it means, like you said, to to recalibrate and heal the mind, we think that it has to be these like fancy interventions. Mm -hmm. And really what you're saying is like the normal rhythms of life, right? Mm -hmm. Like having a meal together, sitting down and kind of unlearning Mm -hmm. what it might have felt like before to eat a meal together. And, and relearning how it can feel safe, that, that those kinds of simple and straightforward ways are, are the key. Yeah, I tell folks when, they, when I'm first doing an intake with them, when I'm first meeting them, um, I take that opportunity to try to introduce myself and let them introduce, tell me their story versus just going through intake paperwork diagnoses and, and, you know, the, the information that they're used to being like the the most important stuff. And it's not, it's really not. It's how did what you, what happened to you? How is that affecting you today? You know, and one of the questions I ask is, do you have something that you do that's no longer serving you? You know, an example, an an obvious example is substance use, you know, um, or alcohol, you know, using alcohol or whatever. And at that point, I tend to tell them, you know, honesty is the framework of this program. Um, We'll tell people you won't get kicked out for using a substance, but you will get discharged for not using staff. Right. Mm -hmm. That's. That's what we're there for. Okay. We have a, we have a harm reduction approach. You know, we want you to be able to practice coming in and telling a truth and experiencing the world, not falling apart around you. That, that has to be life-changing for people, right? I, I want to reiterate, you said you won't be in trouble for using substances, but you will be in trouble if you're not using the relationships that will help you heal. Yes. 
Wow. Yeah. That's wow. a big one. It's a big one. And it, and it is so hard for people. So hard for people. For, for most of them, they've had to use different shades of dishonesty to get their needs met and stay safe most of their lives, even with providers. Mm-hmm. You know, for a lot of folks who have been in and out of uh, particularly substance use services, if they're honest, sometimes they're closed. Sometimes that means they don't really want it. Um, it, it honesty is not their friend. <laughs> it yes. oftentimes backfires. Mm-hmm. And not to say that there aren't consequences for our actions, but they also need to know that that is not going to serve them in the long run. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, and it's a safe place to come into the office and shut the door and and use honesty, use vulnerability and curiosity to stop the cycle. You you obviously come from a place of of deep compassion and empathy. And I know that writing this book has been a a big game changer for you. Can you Mm -hmm. can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you came to write this book and and talk about your journey and tell us a little bit about your story? Sure. So um for context, before the book was written, um, I was—I uh, had decided to become a stay-at-home mom. My son was three months old. Um, at the end of my maternity leave, I just decided I don't want to go back. My daughter was three and a half at the time, and um, I was very fortunate enough to be in a situation where I could make that decision. Um, So because I'm now home, I'm in the midst of uh, motherhood, right? Mm 24-7 started to uh, go a little loopy um, with um, not having anything that was stimulating my brain, right? So I started a blog and uh, it really kind of started out as just a fun way for me to tell stories about the kids and connect with other people. Is that blog still up somewhere, Dawn? Um, it's not as active as I wish it was. Okay. Um, however, yeah, the, the blog was uh, WTF, Words, Thoughts, Feelings. Um, <laughs> we'll link up to it in the show notes. Okay. Okay. So um, what started to happen, though, was um, I started to get a little bit more real and honest and raw in my writing and talking about my experiences um, with depression, uh, anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly as I started to become a mom and I noticed, you know, I was spiraling in and out of these uh, depressive states quite frequently. And I couldn't really figure out why Mm -hmm. Um, I started to notice uh, I was having physical symptoms as I was caring for my kids uh, very basic acts of, of parenthood, um, changing diapers, breastfeeding, bathing or dressing my children. Um, I can remember one particular incident where um, my daughter was about six at the time. And when I would go into her room at night to tuck her in, give her a kiss on the forehead, like I always done, Um, I, I, it was almost like the minute I walked into her room, um, I would get nauseous. Mm. I was, and I didn't understand it, but there was this like jolt of get out of there. When I would breastfeed, I would have an enormous amount of intrusive thoughts, Mm -hmm. um, and, and flashbacks. Mm -hmm. And this all became very overwhelming for me. It got worse with headaches. Um, I was having severe pain in my hips. I got diagnosed with, um, arthritis in my hips at age 30. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, I had no idea what was going on, but I knew something was going on. Can I ask you, can I ask you a question? Cause we were talking yeah. about, you know, uh, physicians and, and healthcare. Um, did, did anybody ask you about trauma at that point? Did it, did you, or, or did you tell your pediatrician or any of your physicians about these intrusive thoughts? I mean, like, from a healthcare perspective, who knew and did you know? Yeah. A, I wish I would have said something. B, I wish I would have been asked. Mm. Um, because no, I, I didn't. 
I went to the doctor about my hip. Obviously I got the diagnosis, right? I went to um, lactation specialists because I couldn't, I couldn't produce enough milk and it was stressing me out. And um, the response I got was just relax, just breathe. And actually when I went there, uh, (laughs) nurses, I love nurses and especially ones, you know, that, that work with, um, in, in the arena of like, uh, post-birth and stuff like that, they, they're just so blunt and they're so, you know, so I'm getting grabbed and and put them here, you know, all these, you know, um, and my son was, um, he was drinking, like he was, he was, I was nursing. It was a, it was a good day, I should say. Right. Mm -hmm. So the lactation specialist was kind of confused. She was like, I don't really understand what's going on in my mind. I was like, it was pure chaos. It was like, I wanted to tell her that like, I don't think like my body, I think it's doing what it's supposed to do, but I'm having such a visceral reaction to it that I think that's what's causing it. And I don't know why I know it's connected to, to what I'm, what I have experienced my trauma because I'm having flashbacks. I'm having these intrusive thoughts that I can't say that I definitely laid to rest, but I had done a lot of work on myself. I, I, I was 28 when I decided to have um, children and that was on purpose because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be the kind of mom that I wanted to be. And I knew in order to do that, I needed to seek therapy. I needed to work through this stuff. Right. So um, I wish I would have spoken up and, and told them what was, I wish I would have let them see the inside as I was seeing the outside, like the, that my insides matched my outsides, you know, because I wasn't painting that picture. I, you know, perfectionism, the mask, all that sort of thing uh, is something that I was um, very good at. <laughs> uh, I, I want to pause for a second because I have goosebumps when you say, um, I wish I would have said something and I wish someone would have asked I think whether you're a lactation consultant, right, who you were talking about, you know, kind of post baby or your pediatrician or nurse or a family practice doc or whoever's interacting with a new mom in that instance, right? I think there's this fear of asking Dawn because they don't want to like impose on you or they don't want to trigger you or they don't want to burden you or they're not sure what to do, you know, if they ask a question. Can you speak to that at all? That, that desire to be, it would have made it so much easier. It sounds like if someone had asked. Yeah. I love talking about this because, um, in my own professional experience, when I tried to, you know, kind of get people on board with, um, asking these kinds of questions, there's such a pushback. It's like, no, stay in your lane. You can't do that. You're going to upset people. We don't have resources to calm them down. That trauma can of worms is already opened and it's already exploding all the time. Right. So like asking is actually giving someone permission to talk about how they're already feeling. (laughs) And I don't think that you are ever going to see somebody so triggered that they start flailing on the ground and you can't handle it. Mm -hmm. Typically what I see when I am in a position where I can delicately, delicately open that door for someone is relief. You know, sometimes it's fears on board too. Of course. But it's more relief and, and who, and at ease, you know, um, I remember when I first talked to my primary care doctor about, um, wanting to start a family and, um, I was concerned because I was taking an antidepressant and I had, you know, I had that conversation with her. Do you think I should continue to take them? Should I go off? And, um, she, she was great. You know, she was very open to the conversation, uh, about, you know, she would help me make the choice of whichever choice was right for me. And, um, but in hindsight, I wish she would have had the knowledge about trauma. Cause I don't know, based on any of our previous interactions and even still to this day, if she, um, if she did, But I wish she did so that she maybe would have said, just so you're aware, 
you know, as you become a parent, you know, as your body starts to change with pregnancy, all, all of it, the whole package, you're mm-hmm. going to be up against a new set of triggers. Absolutely. You yeah. know, um, there was none of that. There was, there was talk about medication. There mm-hmm. was talking about, there was talk about take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. There was never any conversation or questions about my history with trauma Mm. and whether or not that may or may not come into play. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, I think about every OBGYN or family practice doctor, for instance, who have how many moms on their, you know, in their cases that have a score similar to yours, right. Who, um, just want to be asked, want to be validated, want to be educated. Hey, with your body changing and having babies and becoming a mom, you might get a whole new set of triggers based on your history. And I want to support you and make sure you have appropriate resources so that we can walk on this path together. I mean, the way you said it is such a beautiful script and it take, you know, that took you what, 10 seconds to say, Hey, there might be this stuff that's going to come up to you based on your, your trauma history. Mm-hmm. And if it does, it's okay. It's actually a normal response given your experiences. Mm-hmm. The, if, if doctors could be supported in helping uh, trauma survivors normalize things that they are likely going to be up against, mm-hmm. that would be a game changer. Yeah. It would be a game changer because feeling unnormal, feeling crazy, feeling, holy shit, I shouldn't have done this. I, I can't do this. Um, I, I, I'm feeling like I want to run away from my children more than towards them. Um, that is a layer of shame that um, clouds everything. Mm-hmm. And being able to, or, or having someone ask you about that, if you have experienced it, don't be surprised if you do. It doesn't mean that it's going to untangle all the work that you've done, or it's it's going to, uh, you know, upend you, or it means anything. It means that you're a bad mom, right? Yeah, that's what I was thinking, Don. Like, just to hear, um, it doesn't mean you're a bad mom. If you're breastfeeding and being triggered, or if you feel sick when you're walking into your toddler's room, there might be a reason for it. And it's totally normal. It's a trauma response that your body, like you said before, is going right back probably to some of those early moments. Yeah. When I, you know, in hindsight, when, after I started to learn really my, my point of change, as far as how I viewed um, trauma was the Nadine Burke Harris TED Talk mm-hmm. that changed the trajectory of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once I I found that, then I started to get way more curious around what what is this trauma informed care? What, I don't understand what this means. And took a, just a nosedive for several years to to really be able to understand it both for myself and for those that I serve. You know post-traumatic stress disorder was not anything anyone had ever said to me. Wow. Yeah. If I brought up my own mental well-being, depression was discussed. Mm -hmm. um, Anxiety was discussed. Mm -hmm. PTSD was literally never mentioned to me. And so as I started to experience triggers, it wasn't even in my realm of consciousness that this is, this is what was happening. You know, so, um, and, and in hindsight, you know, stepping, stepping into my daughter's room and feeling, feeling nauseous. I know that now I know now that started when she was six, the same age I was when my abuse Mm. occurred, began. It also, I recognize it as a physical, my body's physical response to perceived danger. Right. I was putting her in danger. Mm -hmm. It's not so much a flashback as it is a flash forward. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a it's a it's a moment of thinking. Oh, my God, I'm causing them harm. Everything I've tried to do to not cause them harm. Now I'm causing her harm just by being near her, you know, and it really is a game changer when um, someone can simply plant a seed of awareness that 
even if you have worked on your trauma and, uh, you know, prior to becoming a parent, once you do, you are really coming up against a whole new set of triggers. Uh, and the trigger is the child. Mm-hmm. And that in itself, knowing that, but not understanding it, that's again, where so much shame comes in. Right. It's just loaded with guilt, right? So when you were blogging and, and this started manifesting, right? Is, is that kind of what led you into partnering and writing a book about this or? Yes, I got a little distracted there. No, Sorry. I, yeah. the story, Sorry. I could talk, I mean, <laughs> I could talk to you for hours about this. And I think physicians that are listening are, are I, I know, gaining so much insight into and permission to mm-hmm. start asking the questions. Sure. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, I want to hear how the book came to be then. So I wrote, um, I wrote and published an, an article called um, Raising a Daughter as a Survivor. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, instead of just putting it on my blog, um, I, I was able to get it published on Scary Mommy, uh, oh, yeah. which at the time was, was huge, right? And so it got a lot of eyes on it. And um, Joyelle was one of, those, um, uh, one of those people that read it. And she, she's a mom in British Columbia, Canada, and reached out to me an email and said, you know, I've, I've never heard anybody talk about this. And um, I actually just recently went looking for something that did a book, something that, that talked about this. She, um, she referenced when um, her boys, she had two boys at the time, one of them was going through a hitting phase. Mm -hmm. And when he would hit her, she would have that freeze response and she didn't, she didn't understand it. And Mm -hmm. she, she didn't know what to do about it, who to tell. Cause that's the whole other thing. It's like, who do you tell this stuff to? Very minimally, we, we talked back and forth. And then she asked me, do you want to create the resource that we both went looking for? And I was like, yes, it was like one of those uh, whisper moments Oprah talks about that the universe is just like, here it is, here it is, listen, you know? And so, so that's what we did. And we decided to create an anthology uh, because much more than any sort of like research that we could find, which, you know, by the way, there, there's a ton of research and literature out there about child abuse. And there is so much research about parenting and parenting books, but there wasn't anything specific that we could find about the abused child who grows up and now becomes a parent, right? So that was really our angle. We wanted to get mothers and we wanted to get fathers. It was very difficult to get fathers, um, but we did get a handful in the book. Um, And we specifically asked for stories that weren't, these weren't stories written about the traumas that they experienced. It was about how that trauma has now come into their lives again as they've become parents. Mm-hmm. And what we saw was it, it, it was amazing because not only were these brave women and men uh, saying things that we were thinking we were experiencing, but they were craving that connection as well, you know we definitely saw a trend uh, around parenting young children, particularly because there's so much touch involved. Mm-hmm. That's what we later kind of realizes that it's, it's that touch. I call it the power and pain of touch. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, to go back when I was saying, like when I bathe my children, when I do diaper changes, when I, uh, you know, breastfeed, all those things, you have to do them. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no way around it. You have to do them. So you have all this stuff going on. You're still performing these tasks. Cause it's not that you can't perform them. It's that you, it makes you sick in a sense when you do. Right. And these are supposed to be acts of love and care. And why am I feeling like this when I should be feeling like that? Why, when I changed it, we had one mother who I just thought she was so incredibly brave to say this she would say when she would change her child's diaper, she felt like she was going to become an abuser, you know, when something like that, and, and that's terrifying and who and totally normal. It's terrifying and totally normal. And what you're saying is nobody tells you that. 
Oh my gosh, no. And and who do you tell? Because that is a scary thing to say. <laughs> it is a very scary thing to say um, for a multitude of reasons, but um, for someone who is familiar with um, child family services and mental health services and all that sort of thing, that idea of like mandated reporting Mm -hmm. and what that may sound like coming out of your mouth and how that, what affect, how you might be judged for saying that, because let me be clear, there's, she wasn't talking about in the, the hundreds of mothers that I've talked to who have reiterated exactly what she said and was and have said, I would never have been able to say that out loud. Yes. Thank God she said it for me. And I can just say me too. Um, mm-hmm. But there is, there's no, des- obviously there's no desire to abuse your child, mm-hmm. but there's a fear that you will just by simply touching them. And so to tell a provider that. Um, terrifying. 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 So, so just let's take a, 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 a a second here, because this is so critically important to do a public service <laughs> announcement, Don, between the two of us, right? If you're a provider and you're creating a space for a mom to be able, or dad or whomever to be vulnerable enough to say, you know, I had sexual trauma growing up. And now when I change my child's diaper or I'm interacting with them in the bathtub, I have this horrifying fear that I could abuse them. That is not the same as abusing them. It is a fear that is triggered because of your own trauma history, knowing how violating that can feel as a child, that you would never want to do that to your own child. And it's almost like this reckoning in your brain. And this is the way I describe it to, to survivors of trauma. It's like your brain's trying to reckon, could I do this? Who, how could someone have done this to me? Look at my beautiful child. And it's like brain trying to process this wondering, like, could I abuse my child the same way? But that is not the same as doing it. But if you can't speak to the fear, then you're left feeling terribly alone. Yes. And one thing that might happen and does happen to some parents is they go into freeze. We talk so much about fight and flight. I don't think there's enough conversation around freeze. Mm -hmm. Um, And in this context, that can look like neglect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Say more about that for people that are listening, because I think you're right. And, And if you're familiar with the polyvagal theory, you may have heard about the freeze response a little bit more. And, and, you know, I think a lot of victims of sexual trauma, physical trauma, emotional trauma um, often have enormous guilt around a freeze response. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why didn't you fight? Um, or even in the moment with their own child, they go into a freeze space that as a psychologist, I would call that like dissociation, right? Yeah. Um, but will you say more about what you heard from these parents' stories about that, that freeze space? Definitely. Actually, one thing that comes to mind, I don't know if you've ever heard um, of the documentary Wrestling Ghosts. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a story about a, a, a two-year journey of a mother who is a parenting survivor. Um, Anna Jones is the director. There is a scene in this movie where her two boys are in the living room and it's her living. It's, it's a mess. It's very, you know, it's very messy. The boys are kind of running amok. They're jumping there. Someone should probably have an eye on them, right? Mm-hmm. She's in her room with her phone sitting on her bed like this. That scene moved me incredibly because I think it captures exactly what I am trying to say. Now, this isn't obviously, this isn't severe neglect that I'm describing, but it is a form of, it's so noisy in there. Yes. I, whatever I am saying to them is not calming them down. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I need to just shut down. Yeah. I'm I'm dysregulated. Completely right. dysregulated. And instead of what someone may do, go in there and kind of like take charge of the situation, have the boys calm down, help them calm down, right? Nope, she's overstimulated. She has shut down. Her brain has gone offline and she is going to just exit the situation completely. And that can look like neglect. Uh, 
It can look like neglect. And in extreme circumstances, it can become neglect. Yes. There, you know, there's a story that I am told um, about when I was younger. I was removed from the home by age two. You know, there's a story where uh, someone who had um, come to see me before I was removed, I was dirty. Um, my diaper was hanging, uh, you know, halfway to the floor. And um, I think about that. And I think about it now in the context of my mother who had untreated mental illness, there was substance use, there was, um, you know, a level of violence between her and, and my father. No doubt I should have been taken better care of. But what a different world mine and hers would have been if somebody would have even had an inkling that it's not that she doesn't know how to change a diaper, right? It's that she's completely disassociating from that role because it makes her physically sick to take care of me. It can look like extreme neglect. It can look like just not paying attention, but it is extremely important, I think, for providers to be able to have the lens to see when, if this is happening, is it happening because the mother needs support, not teaching her how to, you know, do the logistics of parenting, how to deal with emotionally handling situations where they are um, providing the care for their child, where they're supposed to be providing the care for their child that they never received, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, I just, I'm tearful in thinking about that example, Don, of, of what you just said, like how different things would have been for you and your mom had someone asked, had someone provided her that support, had someone realized that, you know, I've yet in in my 23 years of being a psychologist, working with moms, working with caregivers, I've yet to meet a parent who wants to be a bad parent. Yeah. Um, And that, that example is so clear to me, right? Like had she had the help, the support, the resources, the understanding that um, she just didn't know how to be engaged with her little girl at that moment. Yeah. And it didn't feel safe to her and it likely felt triggering to her. That's an an incredible um, learning for people. And it goes back to your statement you made before, which is, um, I wish someone had asked what else was going on, especially like you're talking about, like when we look at that lens of neglect and we have such judgment for parents, Mm -hmm. right? That there's something else going on. Be curious about that. Stay curious, right? I, I haven't, you haven't met a mom or a dad who wants to neglect their child. So if we, if we all believe that, then we would be curious as to, I wonder what's happening for that mom to be in that space. Yeah. Again, it's, it's allowing curiosity to lead, Mm -hmm. you know, um, without judgment. Mm-hmm. No, and not and and a, and not having an expectation that everybody who becomes a mom, you know, we get we get so many messages about well, it'll just come naturally. You know, <laughs> um, I don't care who you are, ninety percent of this stuff does not come natural, whether you got trauma on board or not. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I, I I supposedly read all the books, Don, and I struggle with parenting every day. Every day. Every day, you know, and it looks different as your children get older too, you know, um, when they're young, yes, it's, it's, a lot of it is that power and pain of touch, you know, and there's just that constant need people preach self-care, but you don't have time for self-care, you know? Um, and for a lot of folks who don't have extended family or, or large, you know, or community, um, that can send you spiraling. Uh, and then as your kids get older, you're navigating, um, their safety when they're not right in your view, you know, even going to school. Um, because for most of us who are um, trauma survivors, specifically survivors of sexual abuse, um, we are very well aware. Most individuals, most perpetrators are someone that we know and trust, right? Mm-hmm. 
as I am up against this with particularly my daughter who's 13 now, and she's very much, you know, wanting to make her own way and, and have freedom, um, balance, learning how to balance freedom and protection is a constant juggle. Um, not, you know, trying not to be overbearing, but trying not to also not give too much freedom for fear. You know, it's just, it's a constant, it's a, it's a constant balancing act and checking in with myself and asking, is this a normal parenting thing or is, are there, are there triggers going on? It's, it's really being able to tune into my body and figuring out where that fear that I'm feeling right now, as she's asking me to do this is coming from, Mm. where is it coming from? Is it coming from a a place where I'm fearful of her safety or is it, I'm having a hard time letting go or where is it coming from? And even if I can't in that moment, get curious about it, allowing myself to go back to it later. And that I, I tell that to parents a lot too. I, I'll get asked the question, well, what do I do when I'm triggered? Most of the time, there's not much you can do in that moment, right? Except breathe mm-hmm. and try to regulate yourself, right? Yes. Breathing seems so simple, but it's very um, helpful <laughs> just to get that oxygen back into your brain so you can have a rational thought. Mm-hmm. But the important part of that is to just take note, right? Mm -hmm. So whether you're uh, in therapy or not, take note and get curious about it later on. Why did that particular thing feel so scary to me or my body reacted the way that I did, the way that it did, or, um, or I didn't react, Mm -hmm. you know? I love what you're saying. It's great advice for anyone, really parents, especially I think about Bruce Perry's uh, regulate reason, then Mm -hmm. respond. And that's really Mm -hmm. what you're saying. Like, just get yourself regulated, then go back and be curious. Why was I triggered? What was going on for me? And then you can decide what to do next. Right. Um, as we kind of come to a close, how how did you begin to learn about what triggers were and kind of be in this space of really reparenting yourself and learning about trauma and how it manifests as a mom? Um, how how did you how did you kind of come to where you are now? Well, I mean, like I had said earlier, um, I just happened to stumble upon uh, the Nadine Burke Harris um, talk about Aces mm-hmm. and. Um, I, I literally, I was driving home from work and I literally had to pull over on the side of the road uh, because it was an explanation, right? Mm-hmm. For how I was feeling way outside of the realms of you're crazy. <laughs> like yeah. this was an actual physical thing that I am experiencing because of what I went through. Yes. And I alone am not responsible for fixing that. There are people that can help me if they know that this is what's happening to me. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that really kind of started the trajectory of wanting to understand um, more about what toxic stress does to the body in my work. Another, another little kind of Oprah whisper. I had always said, I will never work residential and I will never work. <laughs> I've never now, now working <laughs> as a program director in a house uh, that works with people with um, substance use disorders in Ohio. Um, so I used to get a level of frustration because a lot of the times when I went digging, looking for uh, information about trauma, trauma recovery, stress, all this sort of stuff, a lot of it, most of it is geared towards children, mm-hmm. right? And it's geared towards how an adult, a healthy adult can help that child. That's right you know, regulate. And, and there was nothing that I could find directly that spoke to the adult population, mm-hmm. right? That these kids grow up. Yes. <laughs> We're right here. Um, and, you know, it doesn't all just go away because you grow up, mm-hmm. you know, and what I discovered as I went into this role as a program director, I am working with those children. Mm, yeah, I'm working with those children. That's right. They're just older now and they're more, their wiring is stronger. Mm-hmm. And 
So many times we say, my team, you know, particularly there's a couple of us that are moms. We have so many of the same conversations at home with our younger children that we have with grownups at work, right? Because they never got these messages. And it's a fine balance between you. We're not treating adults like children. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We will, we check ourselves often to make sure that that's not a place we're coming from, Mm -hmm. but also remember that these are lessons that, that were, they were never exposed to in healthy ways, Mm -hmm. you know? So you're, you're reparenting really, you're teaching them reparenting skills. You know, so often people ask me, Don, like, um, you know, why, why do you focus on child psychology or childhood trauma? And I say, because all psychology is childhood psychology. (laughs) And, 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 and I love what you just said, right. That these adults that we interact with, I mean, think about like the people who listen to this podcast, you know, healthcare professionals and physicians who've had their own trauma Mm -hmm. and are, are treating adults with trauma that these are just little people who experienced adversities in the world and have grown up now and may or may not have dealt with that, um, been in a space to have resources, to feel safe, um, had access to people who would listen, um, looked beyond their diagnoses or medication. And like you said, just been curious about what else might be going on. So, um, I love that you're, you've come like to this space of, of sitting with adults now. Yeah. And it really, you know, it's acceptable, right? It's, 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 it's acceptable to look at a child who is, um, you know, having a tantrum of sort mm-hmm. and not judge because they're mm-hmm. a child, right? So that same behavior presents itself in adults who never got supported to understand their own trauma, what it did to them, right? 100%. But that comes with an enormous amount of judgment, right? That adult temper tantrum. That adult temper tantrum gets things thrown at you like um, you don't want to change. You're manipulating the situation. Every time everything, something's going right, you're sabotaging it. You don't really want to get better. Um, you know, just, just put the drink down, you know, all these kind of messages that we send the adult abused child. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not fair. Yeah. It's not fair. And it can be preventable if you are able to educate yourself and your staff Mm-hmm. to recognize behavior as language. Mm-hmm. The staff, we didn't really get a chance to talk about that, but, you know, s- supporting the folks who are also helping yeah. on the front line is enormous, particularly in the mental health field, because so many of us went into the field, right? Because we have very similar experiences to those we serve. And so if we're not talking to our staff about how they're being triggered, help make them aware, help them regulate, have compassion for them. Um, it's a vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, first of all, we can keep talking about it more. I want to have you back on this podcast because I, I know that people are, you know, listening and taking notes even as you're talking and, the compassion and empathy that come through are just um, palpable, Don. Um, let me let me try to wrap up some of our, our time together by doing what I call um, rapid fire questions at the end to kind of pull us together at the end and 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 lighten a little bit. But um, what's what's one thing that you think people get wrong about trauma informed work? <laughs> that we're sitting around making excuses for people, oh, right? So I, always, <laughs> I tell people often, um, there are explanations. They are not excuses, mm-hmm. okay? Um, there are explanations why people are reacting the way that they are. We're not giving them a pass to keep acting that way, yes. right? We're just acknowledging that 
It's not because they are broken or, you know, whatever other toxic word you want to throw at them. Mm -hmm. Um, There's actually a reason. Mm -hmm. And um, we're not going easy. We're not. No, it has more to do with compassion than than anything else, really. If if people hear nothing else, I mean, there's so much today in this time together. But if they hear nothing else, trauma informed does not mean making excuses for people. It means having compassion for people. I I just we should put that on a T-shirt and wear it around. I think you may have answered this, but I want to reiterate for listeners. Um, if you could go back or if, if a, as a young Dawn, as a new mom and, and tell her something, what would it be? Get the expectation that you're going to have or you're going to be the perfect mom. Not that I was aiming to be the perfect mom, but I, the image of perfect mom for me was the anti of what I experienced, mm-hmm. right? Like. Mm-hmm. Get it out of your head that you're not going to be up against some of the same challenges that your own mother was up against, mm-hmm. right? Because um, there's no way to avoid that. Mm-hmm. It's okay. These things are going to happen. And um, it's okay to talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't mean you're a bad mom. That actually probably still to this day, I, I battle like bad mm-hmm. mom. You know, as I've learned, as my eyes have been widened to ideas of, you know, patriarchy and misogyny and the messaging that we've received our whole lives, you know, and women have for for ever, <laughs> um, that definitely plays into it as well. You know, um, the idea of being a good mom versus a bad mom, my body reacting a certain way has nothing to do with good and bad. Thank you for that. Um, so this is the last question, probably the toughest. Um, it's 11 PM at night and you have a food craving. What do you reach for? Oh, uh, oh my God. I am a chips and dip kind of girl. Actually last night (laughs) I broke out the chips and dip and it's so bad and I know it. Um, but I don't know. There's just something about that um, that combo <laughs> that uh, there's nothing better than snuggling up on the couch and binging on Netflix and just turning the volume up because I can't hear it over my own crunch. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Okay, awesome. Um, I want to thank you, Don, for being here on this podcast today. Um, this is an underscoring my belief that people with lived experience are the best experts, um, and I appreciate you sharing your your story and your vulnerabilities and the stories of the people that you serve and the stories of other people you've written about. So we will link up to your book and your website, everything in the show notes so that people have access to it. And we'll also link up to Nadine Burke Harris's TED Talk. I've done that before, but we'll do it again because it is it's a game changer for so many people. But let me just say. From the bottom of my heart, you are creating less aloneness in this world. And I appreciate you for that. It's, it's beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, I really, really appreciate that. And I appreciate the opportunity. Um, this one felt really special. This opportunity felt special for me because I've never had the opportunity to talk where I knew that medical professionals were listening. Um, Mm -hmm. oftentimes I speak to family services, I -hmm. speak to mental health providers. Um, and there's always been this raging gap for me, uh, not being able to reach the medical field, um, particularly because of my own experience and under, and in hindsight, seeing how how primary care, how post and, and, you know, family planning and then OBGYN, like all that they're just, there's so much potential to plant seeds of awareness. Um, And I hope that that message comes through that there's nothing big, huge that needs to be done. Just opening the door for a conversation and asking can, can really ultimately change Uh, a mother or father's life. And um, I appreciate the opportunity to say that. Yeah. Thank you. Well, that's it, friends. If you like what you're hearing in this space, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge, a learning collaborative to build resilience. It's an incredible group of physicians who meet monthly, get CME, and lean into conversations about trauma, resilience, and other tough topics. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you and keep sharing your own. 
because your humanity will heal others. We'll talk soon.